Health Hour on cliffcentral.com. Well, it's a very good morning to you from me, Dr. Cindy Fansale. And um, this morning, I'll be chatting to Dr. Liz um, Gwither. Um, she's from the um, Hospice and Palliative Care Association of South Africa. So I'm really, really glad to have her on the show because she's done phenomenal work in the field of um, palliative care. And um, it's it's always amazing to speak to people like Liz because it takes a lot out of you to be involved in such a field, you know. And I especially remember uh, when I was working at Barra during the time, the height of the HIV um, deaths, you know, a lot of patients had to go into um, hospices and the hospices in Soweto were full and you couldn't get a space and so on. And I remember that, especially in December, when patients were really sick, family members would want to know if, if, you know, if people could be put in hospice until they got better and so on. So when I think of hospices and I think of palliative care, I always, you know, I always look back on those days and, and yeah, I remember, you know, trying to get spaces for, for patients and so on. But anyway, Liz, thank you so much for, for joining me on the show. Dr. Cindy, thank you so much for inviting me. Well, first of all, Liz, I commend you on the work that you do. Um, you've been involved in palliative care for many, many years. And um, it's not, I, I don't think it's a field that many people go into. So what drew you to the field of, of palliative care? Well, my work was in general practice, Dr. Cindy. So part of general practice is um, seeing people throughout their life course. So I was doing obstetric work and delivering babies yeah. and looking after people in the family and yeah. then looking after people who had um, life-threatening and terminal illnesses and were going to die. And um, I realized that I hadn't been trained at all in that discipline when I'd been at medical school, so looked for um, ways to improve my knowledge about palliative care. Mm. And then I was working in a little town called um, Somerset West in the Western Cape, and they opened a hospice. And they asked general practitioners to assist them with the after-hours care of their patients. And so that's how I really got involved. And I did most of my initial learning from the palliative care nurses at the hospice and from the social worker at the hospice who taught me most of my counselling skills. That's awesome. That is awesome because... And you're right about the, the, the medical schools not spending enough time, with, uh, you know, on palliative care. I know when we rotated through palliative care, it was a short rotation. I don't think many of us took it seriously. And, you know, when I look back now, I wish we had because it, it is, it's more, there's more to it than just finding a space for a patient that's terminally ill. The counseling skills you speak about are so important. Yes, yes, they are very important. And I actually found that when I did do my formal training in palliative care, it actually made me a better all-round doctor anyway mm. um, for whatever discipline I was working in or whatever problem I was faced with. That's amazing. And you've been recently appointed um, um, as the, you know, to to chair the World Hospice Association. Yes, I'm now the chairperson of the Worldwide Hospice Palliative Care Alliance. That, that's, that's, um, that's, that's awesome, Liz. And, and how did that come about? Well, it came about really... Um, international colleagues. It really came about through going to international conferences mm-hmm. and meeting other colleagues who were working in um, palliative care, but recognizing that the, the unique position of a hospice palliative care association that helps to coordinate activities and try and raise awareness about palliative care in each country, that we could all we could share the best practices worldwide. So a colleague of mine from the, the United Kingdom 
had this idea of having a kind of global voice and how we could influence palliative care worldwide. And that's amazing. That's awesome. And I think, you know, to have people like you who are very passionate about the field, you know, I'm he- to have a person like you heading such a body, I mean, you, you'll be able to influence people from all across the world. Well, that's what, that is what we try to do. And I think that what makes it more effective is that there are many of us. So it's not just one person. There's a mm. whole team of people with a lot of different skills. And one of our most effective partnerships has been with Human Rights Watch, Mm. Um, who are come at it from a human rights perspective and with training as lawyers. So they, you know, we've always been as palliative care quite um, quiet and in the background and saying to um, people in power and policymakers, you know, how can we help you improve the healthcare system? Human Rights Watch say, you're doing a dreadful job. Look at how many people are in pain. And they're quite confrontational. Mm. But it's been a good partnership because they do the confrontational bit and then the hospice palliative care people come come behind them and say, so we've got the answers. How can we help you improve things in your country? Mm, that's awesome. So just going back to um, like, like zoning on, on, on the organization that you chair, the Hospice and Palliative Care Association, um, where are you based and how did that association come about? And just tell us a bit of what it's all about. Okay. So the Hospice Palliative Care Association was founded in 1987, and it came about at that stage there were 15 hospices in South Africa, which had, I mean, and the initial ones had been the hospice in Joburg, Hospice Association of Witwatersrand, St. Luke's Hospice in Cape Town, and Highway Hospice in Durban. And in fact, it was the hospices in KwaZulu-Natal that said, we need to get together and share best practice. So the Hospice Palliative Care Association was founded with Archbishop Vincent Tutu as our first patron and uh, Professor J.P. Felicek, who at the time was the, the Dean of the Faculty of Medicine at UCT as our chairperson. Mm-hmm. And so it was, it's being based in Cape Town. And so the head office is in Cape Town. But we now have 156 member hospices across the country and with hospices uh, in... I think it's 39 of the 54 health districts. And the province that is least well-served is in Limpopo. We only have two hospices in in Limpopo, but we are um, changing our uh, focus more. Rather than having NGOs providing palliative care, or only NGOs providing palliative care, we're working very closely with the Department of Health to integrate palliative care into every level of the health system. And, of course, it also means that we need to work with the Department of Social Development so that there's palliative care in old age homes and in children's homes as well. Okay. And and, and it's important because I must say the most of the hospices that I know of are NGO-funded and run by NGOs. Yes, and it's very precarious funding. So we've actually had about 10 hospices closed in the last, two years because of lack of funding. Okay, and then what happens to those hospices? Do you guys take them over? What happens, you know, do they just close down and that's it? Well, in some places, it, um, larger hospices have been able to um, take over and to um, help the patients who have that need. For example, hospice in the West and Krugersdorp closed recently and um, the Hospice Association of Witwatersrand has absorbed a lot of their patients. But there are other hospices, especially in the rural areas, that when they close, there isn't 
there isn't that opportunity for palliative care for patients needing that care. And so it's so important that palliative care now is ava- should be available in the health system because it means that people must get it from the clinic. Mm. Um, but having said that, a lot of people who um, are later in their illness really need the care in the home. So we need to find a way to get the, um, the professional care or the home-based carers to people in their homes that they don't have to go to a clinic or a hospital mm. for an illness that there isn't much that the acute health um, care system can help them with. Yeah, I hear you. And the, the, I mean, for me, Liz, I think... When I first um, started working with HIV patients, I think it was filled with a lot of fear, especially when, you know, patients came in in stage AIDS and, you know, you knew that this person was going to die. How did, I think a lot of us are filled with fear. A lot of, of medical practitioners just don't know where to begin with a patient that's really, really ill. Yeah. And I think that that's because we weren't trained in managing chronic illness even or and definitely not trained in managing people with terminal illness. Yeah. So we know how to cure. That's what doctors are trained to do, still trained to do. I mean there's more access, there's more palliative care training in medical schools these days than there, there was nothing when I was training. Mm. <laughs> and um and a lot of it is really just discovering the patient's needs and the patient's wishes. And palliative care really looks at the stressing symptoms. So it's not what disease has a person got or what illness is it, it's what what are your actual needs. And I found in doing a survey of home-based care compared to hospital care, that in hospitals we don't ask about pain and other symptoms and worry and anxiety. We don't. So we talk about the illness. And in HIV, I mean, I think the HIV uh, clinicians have come a great way and they are talking a lot about pain and symptoms. And I think the change in the face of the HIV epidemic has been um, quite encouraging because the time you're talking about and when hospice got involved in HIV care in the 1990s, having um, contracted HIV meant you were going to die. Yeah. So now the work that the government has done to make sure that people are accessing antiretrovirals has changed it completely. Totally. So live mm. a long, normal life provided they're on their treatment. So most of, the, most of the work we're doing with HIV patients is looking at how do we help people to stay on their treatment and mm. to manage the symptoms that might be part of the HIV or might be part of the treatment and supporting them because quite a lot of the issues in palliative care in South Africa are more social issues than medical issues. Mm. And in terms of family support, I mean, it, it, so, you know, so you have a family, a, a member who's in a hospice or, you know, who's, you know, receiving palliative care. Do you guys also provide support for the family, you know, because they Absolutely. obviously need counseling and so on? Yes. So there are many ways that we support families. One of the things about hospice in South Africa is that we have very few inpatient facilities, so very few beds. So most of our care is nurses or care workers going to look after people at home. And it actually means that the people who have the majority of the burden of the care are family members. Okay. And so 
So one thing is helping family members to know how to care for a person who's ill. And the other is looking at the impact on the illness on that family member as well. What kind of emotional support do they need? What kind of, um, can we get a grant? Is there financial support that we can mm. help with? And then, especially during the time when a patient may be dying or after they've died, the hospice is, is very skilled in providing bereavement support and will often visit the family or be alongside the family for 13 months so that we cover the first year anniversary of the death. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. I mean, Liz, I'm feeling a bit wobbly this morning because one of my favorite patients um, passed away. I'm, I, was, I was saying on Twitter that doctors have favorite patients. I mean, I work in the field of HIV and this guy was my favorite patient and he died. I mean, I, I saw him a week ago. He he got sick. He, he just deteriorated. He got admitted into a hospital two days later as an ICU and he passed away. And, you know, and. I'm feeling like this and he was just my patient. So I'm trying to imagine if you have a family member and you know that they're going to pass away, you can see what's going on. You know, it's good to know that you guys are there as a, as a support structure. It's good to know that you're there for 13 months to make sure that you, you know, that you get through the one year anniversary and so on. It's, it's amazing. Yeah. And to support the patient and the family with their choices, the things that they want, the, the way they want to be cared for during those last months or weeks or days of life and a lot of people would prefer to be at home and yet too many people are admitted to hospital and actually die in hospital without being having their family with them and they would prefer to be at home in a comfortable place but there's that uncertainty of if they go into hospital will they get better and Mm -hmm. that's the wish that people often have um, which makes a lot of people rush to hospital when it's actually the final event. Um, so it's really important. We're trying to promote um, having an advanced care plan and an advanced directive or living will that means that people have thought about what happens if they become sick. Mm-hmm. And I know that overseas, both in the United States, in Canada, in Australia, in New Zealand, there's an actual day that's called advanced planning day on the 16th of April and we're planning to um, publicize, you know, let's talk about what would happen if we get ill and what would be our choices so that people have it written down and we have an advanced directive or a living will for doc- to guide doctors and our family members who might be helping make choices about our care. So they know what we want. Yes, yes. Yeah. And I'm very sad to hear about your favourite patient, Pastor Ray Doxley. It's always, it's always a, a loss and bereavement for the healthcare professionals as well. Mm. I mean, I don't know. I don't know how you cope. I cry. Crying is my therapy. Yes. But how do you, I mean? Um, do you guys have support structures for your for your workers as well? Because I can imagine it's a very it must be very draining at times. Yeah. Um. So do you get? Do you have caring for the carers? What do you have in place? Yeah, we have a very strong care for the care work caregiver um, program. So partly it's kind of understanding how your work impacts on yourself. But palliative care work is in fact very rewarding because we can make such a difference. If we can help a person who's in pain and treat their pain so that they're no longer in pain and can live actively throughout their, their lives, however long they've got, or help with other symptoms, or help with the emotional or spiritual distress that people have 
it's a time when we can make a lot of difference, so it's very rewarding. But it is a time when um, people, I mean, we become very close to our patients. So when somebody dies and we're supporting a family, there's that emotional burden that we carry ourselves. And mm-hmm. our staff are really good at supporting each other. So if somebody has lost a patient, then they will look out for him or her and make sure they're doing all right. And then that person supports the next one if that, mm. if that occurs as well. And I think the knowledge that we've done a good job, that a person has um, died in comfort and in peace in their own home mm. and that the families are so grateful for the work that the hospice has done, that that's also very affirming. And I think... I think the thing that we are taught, the very first thing that we teach in palliative care or that we learn in palliative care is that um, we affirm life, so it's very important that we have quality of life and live positively, but we recognize that death is a normal process, that death happens to us all. Mm. And actually, that's a very that's a very unnatural thing in our society. We don't talk about death. We don't think, you know, it could happen to me. It might happen I to know. me, but it's not going to happen to me. Exactly. And death-denying kind of society. Well, that's the we reason why I'm so wobbly. Life. But that's the thing, Liz. That's the reason why I'm so wobbly. I'm so used to getting patients in, start them on treatment, yes. three months later, everything's going well, four months later, everything's going well. And then, so yes. so his yes. death has just, um, it's almost yeah. cracked me. I'm like, what? How did that happen? You know? Yes. Oh. Yes. And you're right. And then, we don't. We don't. Yeah. Oh, and you kind of go over and over in your mind. What could you have done differently? And is there something else that would have helped? And all sorts of things. Whereas, in fact, death is part of the cycle of life. And it may be that some people die too early because of their illness. And you know, when we think about palliative care for children, mm. we kind of think, oh no, it's not natural that a child should die. And any any parent at any age will say, my child shouldn't die before I die. It's not part of the cycle of life. But it does happen. And we need to recognize that a child with a genetic disorder or something incurable may also die. And we have to give the best possible care there as well. Oh, but Liz, that must be so difficult. That must be very difficult. I do think that my colleagues in pediatric care are very special people. Yeah. Because, I, I mean, I, I love pediatrics. I always tell people that I'm a closet pediatrician. But because of all the babies that I saw dying at Barrow when I was, when I was rotating there, that I, I couldn't handle it. I couldn't handle having to... Because you know how high in our systems, um, we are the ones, the doctors are the ones that have to tell the family that so-and-so has, has passed away. So telling a mom that her baby had died and just watching her reaction and her horror and her... Her screams and so on. I never ever recovered from that, and that's why I think pediatric palliative care must be very hard. But at the same time, the support that one can give to the family is also so valued. Yeah. Okay, so we'll be back after this, Liz, and we'll just, so just don't go away. We'll be back after okay. this and we'll carry on chatting about all the work that you've done. And I specifically want to, to talk about pain because I know you've done a lot of work in the field of pain, something that's very important. So stay on the line. Thank you. Okay. On my shoulders, I carry the hopes and dreams of generations to come. I'm eager to learn. 
but even more eager to use my knowledge for good. I know that it's not where I come from, but where I'm going to that really matters. At Sibanya Gold, we believe our youth is worth its weight in gold, which is why we are so committed to developing, nurturing and grooming our young people into future leaders. Sibanya Gold, we are one. This is cliffcentral.com. And so we're back on the Health Hour with Dr. Liz Gwither, and she's the CEO of the um, Hospice and Palliative Care Association of South Africa, and she's also the chairperson of the Worldwide, 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 Worldwide Hospice um, Association, and that's really awesome. That's a fantastic accolade on, um, for her. Liz, welcome back. Thank you. So, Liz, we were talking about um, pain. You mentioned pain, um, managing pain. So I'd run, I wanted to go into more detail because I think that's definitely the one area of, of, of medicine that um, even even today, as a, I mean, I've been a doctor for about 10 years, I still have, you know, issues around managing pain and so on. So just tell us a bit about that. I mean, I know you've done excellent work in that field. Okay. So I think that one of the big problems in managing pain is that as doctors and nurses, we are all taught that morphine and opioid medication is dangerous, Mm. and it's not. I think we have to unlearn that and learn that morphine is safe, effective, easy to use, provided we've been trained in it, and we just have to be as cautious with um, opioid medication as we are with any other kind of prescription. And the problem stemmed from 1961 single convention on narcotic drugs. Okay. Where there was a plan that was at the United Nations, there was a worry about drug addiction, and it came out that we have to um, control the use of opioids. So currently, and there's recently been a study done by the World Health Organization um, that is looking at access to controlled medication, that 83% of the world's population, 5.5 billion people, live in countries with no access to opioid medication at all. Mm. So people who are in pain have to suffer excruciating pain. And Human Rights Watch has done a lot of work looking at this and looking at the epidemic of suicides that has happened in Russia, for example, where there's no access to opioids. So in South Africa, we are very fortunate that we have very reasonable prescribing um, laws about the use of opioids. And the International Narcotics Control Board has brought out a very good paper that says there needs to be a balance between access morphine for people who need it for pain and the abuse of, and it's not usually morphine that's abused, it's it's other kind of narcotic drugs or methamphetamines even that are really the problems in drug control. Mm. So we feel that because there's this, this concern about morphine and its danger and it being addictive, that people don't get adequate pain management and pain um, control. And partly, again, our medical students and our nursing students are not taught how to assess pain properly and how to manage pain effectively. Mm. So this is something that we really need to improve. 
And I also sit on the Pain SA Council, which is um, the South African chapter of the International Association for the Study of Pain. Oh, that's fantastic. To try and make sure that there's better education about pain and pain management, both for healthcare professionals and for patients who might need um, their pain control. That's that's excellent. That's so important. I think um, if, if this message can keep going, you know, filter down to medical schools and, and making sure that the students that are coming through and the nursing students that are coming through are aware of all of this, I think will improve the system um, dramatically. Absolutely. And pain seems to be one of the most devastating symptoms that people fear and people experience. And in fact, it's probably about 65%, I think, is the, is the figure of, of patients actually present to their doctor because of pain mm. and the doctor doesn't treat the pain the doctor says oh the pain is due to this illness and treat that illness and expects the pain which it will do the pain will get better when that illness is, is, um, is improved but how many days of pain does that person have to suffer in the meantime and many times they can't go to work it, it affects it affects your yes. whole life yes. it affects your whole life and in yeah. terms and in, in terms of um like so, we spoke. You spoke about Limpopo earlier on that they only have two two hospices, or Hospice. you know, um, how does how does a situation like that ha- come about, Liz? I mean, I'm I'm trying to in Soweto alone. I can't I can't even count how many hospices you have in Soweto oh. alone, and yes. now you have a province that only has two. Okay, so so the issue is that until recently. Palliative care has been an NGO function. So it's yeah. been two hospices. And at the beginning, hospices were established in communities that could afford them because they were only funded by community donations. Mm. And our hospices have done quite a lot of good work in kind of twinning so it's, or sharing their resources in different communities. So like St. Luke's Hospice in Cape Town has got 10 community branches okay. and the, uh, the West Coast branch and Table View twins with the Kailitsha branch. So okay. any funds that are raised in West Coast also go to Kailitsha. But it's the same that the, the, the whole hospice kind of shares resources on, what, on, on how they receive donations. Okay. But if you're in a, uh, an impoverished um, community and in a province where funding is not um, flowing to charity sectors, then one can't afford a hospice. So what is... And so, so yeah. one, one, one of the things we did, we were fortunate enough to receive funding from um, the United States Agency for International Development, the USAID. Yes. And for about 10 years, we were able to develop hospices in the underserved communities. So we moved from 50 hospices when we first got the funding in 2004. We moved up to 202 hospices at the height of this funding in 2011. And unfortunately, we've now dropped back to about 156 hospices. Okay, because uh, the funding's been cut back, and so obviously a lot of them had to close down. Yes. Sure. And if okay, so say if a family member was to you know apply for for someone to be taken to a hospice, what's the procedure? What's the process? Does it have to be a referral? How does that work? Okay, so most hospices ask a um, ask for information about 
the, the person who's being referred to hospice, and they do need the medical details. So they do want a referral from the doctor, but it doesn't have the initial referral doesn't have to come from the doctor because we also look for the family details. Mm. So a family member or community member or somebody from the church can say, you know, um, would you come and visit this patient? And then we say, please, would you ask your doctor to complete this part of the form that tells us the diagnosis, the medication the person is on, what kind of interventions have been done, and how, you know, the the clinical condition of the person who's being referred. Mm. And most hospices take about two to three days to process all of that and for the nurse to schedule a visit. Yeah. And then the professional nurse will do a visit often in the home and will um, develop an individual care plan. What is it that the person needs depending on what their problems are? And if it's if it's an emergency, um, there are some hospices that have beds that may take a person in, or there are hospices that don't have beds but have an arrangement with a, a care home or a hospital around um, setting the original care plan in place. Okay. But once there's a care plan and the worst of the symptoms are controlled, then the care happens in the home. Oh, okay. And... Um so and then once a patient is better, then they're transferred back home, and then you can carry yes. on there. Yes. Oh, okay. And then the medication and all of those things. Who fits the bill for that, Liz? I think you know because I know that the hospices that I used to see, obviously the Department of Health was paying, or whichever department was paying, yes. or the NGO. But um, so who who generally fits the bill for all of that stuff? So mostly there's a, an arrangement with the Department of Health, either clinical hospital. So the patient will continue with their um, their folder at the clinic or the hospital, mm-hmm. and the nurse or the doctor at the at the hospice will have that discussion with either the clinic or the hospital. So it depends where you where you work. When I was working at Helderberg Hospice in Somerset West, yeah. I had prescribing privileges with the Hottentot Holland Hospital, so I oh, could write I on the hospital prescription pad. And that would be honoured by their pharmacy. Okay. Or sometimes the doctor will write the prescription, and the nurse will, t- the hospice nurse will take the prescription to the hospital, the doctor at the hospital, and mm. he or she will rewrite that. Okay. Or sometimes we have to do a whole referral. And if a patient is really sick and really um, too ill to travel, and we've done this assessment, but they have to be seen by a hospital doctor in order to get the medication, then we have to refer. So it's, a, it's kind of duplicating the work, which, you know, the health system in our country, we can't afford to duplicate work yeah. when there's so much other work to do. So it depends where you are, what you get that. But, but it means that the medication does come from the state. Okay, hosp- that's good. Hospices cannot afford to also run a pharmacy. Yeah, or no, you can't. No, I understand so. that, yeah. And and I mean, and, and in terms of the cases that, that you primarily see, I mean, I know that with the advent of, of antiretroviral treatment, that has changed the face of HIV totally. So I'm, I, I'm, I'm sure you're seeing much less HIV-related um, um, admissions, right? Much fewer admissions, but still quite a lot of home care. So uh, nationally, our statistics around HIV has dropped from about 83% of our patients being HIV to about 60 and uh, we we see in quite a lot of people with chronic conditions 
so heart failure, diabetes, mm. um, renal failure, those kinds of things. And then we think that we're not seeing enough cancer patients. So you think you're not seeing enough? Yes. We have a, a relatively small proportion, about 10% of the patients we see are cancer patients. I thought it would be and more. We do hear that um, there are cancer patients who remain in oncology services with active treatment for oncology or changing from the first regimen of oncology treatment to the second and third and fourth without there being palliative care involved. And we're concerned that the oncologists are not referring enough to us. I can't imagine, um, um, I mean, a, a cancer patient, you know, going through those phases without involving palliative care. World, one would think, but it's so much that the so so again, it's how a person is trained, and the oncologists are trained to cure cancer. The fact that sixty percent of their patient load at any one time is non-curable, they still are in the curative mode, and they don't think to involve the palliative care clinician at the same time. Sure. And are you able? Have you done any outreach to oncologists? Is there a way of reaching them? Yes, yes, no, we do, and we and a lot of hospices have quite good relations with, relationships with oncologists and do um, get some referrals, but it, it's for the oncologists to recognise when palliative care should be involved. Yeah, and I think that, that that's one of the areas that we are focusing on, both in I'm part of the World Health Organization Technical Advisory Group on Palliative Care. And at that forum and also in, in South Africa, mm-hmm. we are working on a document that says, so how do you identify the person who needs palliative care or who could benefit from palliative care? And the idea is that we don't have to have a prognosis of saying, well, they're going to die this year or they're going to die next year or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's looking at what are their needs. So have they got severe symptoms? Have they got stage three or four cancer? Is really if the, if the staging of the cancer has reached three and definitely if these metastasis so it's four, the mm-hmm. person needs palliative care. But for a person with heart failure or a person with emphysema, we also look at how frequently have they been hospitalized for their condition. Mm-hmm. And we look at what is their kind of, we call it a performance status. What kind of functions can they do at home? You know, have they been able to do less and less? If they are homebound or bedbound, they really need palliative care. Yes, definitely. But, but both for the patient and for the family, and for the doctor, there's this idea of, oh, no, there might be something that will change this and we might get better. And there's that, there's that hope. And, and I think that it's really important to nurture a patient, a person's hope for, well, in, in palliative care for the best possible quality of life. But mm. if you're offering the, the patient with metastatic cancer cure, you actually, that's not realistic hope that you, you, them. You're not being truthful towards them. Yeah. And again, and I guess it's this be. fear of discussing. Yeah. It's this fear of discussing death. So you, you you're saying ideally, you should you should, dis- you should be having as upfront discussions as possible. Yes, and it doesn't have to be a discussion about death. It's a discussion about what would your choices be. Again, so we're talking about the advanced directive idea. Okay. What What are the things that you are hoping for? 
And what are the things, what are your goals? You know, you now have a serious illness. And I think that's the one thing that we have to, the one word that we can use that is not um, like talking about death and dying, so something that's overwhelmingly fearful, but it acknowledges what that patient is, is experiencing. If we say, oh, no, this isn't a serious illness, you're going to get better, the patient thinks, but then why am I feeling so grim? Why can't I do this? Why is this quite a... If you say to a person, it is a serious illness, but we can help make things a whole lot better because we can definitely control pain and we can control other distressing symptoms and we can help you achieve what you want to achieve. What are your goals now? And what should be our goals of care? What are the things you're hoping to do in the next year or the next mm, six months? That's a, and how can we help you achieve those? Mm, that's, a, that, that's, a, that's a good conversation. I think that's a very good way of, of going about it. Mm. And I'm, I'm glad mm. that I'm chatting to you because I am also learning a lot, you know, from, from this conversation. And just in terms of, of the future, your future plans, you know, as, as we wrap up, um, yeah, what does the future look like for you? Where can we find you, you know? Okay. So the, the future is actually looking very bright in South Africa. Our government was one of the governments that proposed a resolution at the World Health Assembly that said that palliative care should be integrated in the health system. And following on that, they've put together a strategic advisory group for the minister on developing a palliative care policy for the country and then making sure that we implement palliative care in the health system and that there's education for all health care professionals. However, it suits people to do that, whether it's an online course or whether it's going to the university to do a diploma course and, whether, and making sure our medical students um, have this in place. So I think that we're going to have a great deal of improvement in South Africa and one of the things that has happened is that every three years, the Economist Intelligence Unit put out a quality of death index that says what is the, what is the access to palliative care. Mm-hmm. They've done it twice, and both times the UK has been top. And the last time they did it, South Africa was number 40 and is now number 34 in, of 80 countries in the world that have been ranked. Okay. And South Africa is the top country in Africa. Okay. So we can still do quite a lot better, but we're on that path at the moment. So both for the Hospice Palliative Care Association and for my other job at the University of Cape Town where I teach palliative medicine, there is a lot of focus on educating the public and it, so the people who might need palliative care, which also includes you and me, because mm. one of the day, one day it's going to be forecast. I know. And then, and and so it's our job now to make sure that in the future we get better care. Yes. And that there's better care for our parents and those those kinds of things at the moment. So, educating the public and educating the healthcare professionals that that needs to be our focus at the moment. And then this. Um, advice and assistance to the government and to the minister to improve palliative care in this country. No, thank you so much, Liz. And um, how can we get hold of you? If, if someone wants to email so, you or get in touch with you, how can they get hold of you? So we've got a website that's www.hpca.co.za and on the website there's a whole there's an option to find a hospice if people need to find a hospice and it's got the listing of wherever our hospices are. Our phone number is in Cape Town, 021 
And then my personal email address is Lynn at hbca.co.za. Okay, um, great. So those are different ways of getting hold of us. And you can like us and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And there's a global Twitter chat that happens every Monday okay. at 1 o'clock GMT. So at 1 o'clock in the UK. Mm-hmm. And that's called HPM, standing for Hospice Palliative Medicine Global. And people can about different things. We recently had a, uh, a tweet chat about access to medication and somebody has put up a map that says there's 90%, 95% of the morphine used in the world is used in seven countries to get sure. adequate, reasonable pain management and the rest, 5% of the rest of the population in the world have poor pain management. Management is quite scary. It is very scary. But yeah, no, thank you very much, Liz. It is awesome chatting okay. to you. And I'll make sure that we put out all your details. And as soon as the podcast is up, I'll let you know. Okay. Okay. Thank you thank very you much. Thank you so much for having me on the program. Thank you. Bye. Okay. Bye. Health Hour on CliffCentral.com.